This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. We're going to give you an hour of science. I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Cromer. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? Are you whispering? I'm, well, whispering? I'm a little, <laughs> are you yelling? I am a little, a little um, tired of eye because of I stayed up to uh, to watch the eclipse, eclipse last night. But you got the extra hour. I got the extra, and I used it very well. Yeah. I, really, I cannot believe that last this time last this time last night that last night I was looking at Bonnie Tyler lyrics, trying to, <laughs> trying to think about eclipse-related songs. I, I feel as though I inspired you last <laughs> night because at one point you put up a photo, and I thought. Oh dear. And then I went out and took a photo. And I put that up. And then you came back later and put up a very impressive photo. I was, I balanced, I balanced so many things on, on a, on a backyard table, tip pockets out and stuff, and balanced my camera on a pair of binoculars. Very nice. And, and, and took a couple of pictures. Yep. But the, the redness of the moon is, uh, was, was amazing. Don't they call it the, the blood moon? Blood moon. Completely. Yeah. How can you can you explain it in 140 characters or less? How it looks red? I'm sure I can't. But uh, Emily <laughs> Petrov's in the studio. She's joined us from uh, Swinburne again today. Emily, why is it red? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> You're a radio astronomer, so we're going to let you. It's true. Off. I don't normally yeah. use those yeah. types of telescopes where you look with your eyes. So meh. yeah, well, it's got it's got to be uh, it's got to be a refractory yeah, process of the light, re- and, and the red is the red is getting through, and the blue is yep. not. So yep. um, right. as the light skims the atmosphere, I suspect is uh, is the go. But it does look cool for a brief period. And Dr. Ray, good morning. Uh, morning, Dr. Shane. You know, you guys have been talking about all your photos. I mean, I took one on my iPhone. It's really in the size of a Facebook post on a mobile, it looks about the same that your fancy pictures do. Um, uh, if you zoom it up and maybe squint at it. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, people are doing that these days. And there's nothing wrong with chucking a, a smartphone, because we don't endorse any particular product on this program, up against the telescope and doing your best, because they actually have pretty good little phone camera chips in them these days. Yeah. I've done that with microscopes and lab. We'll put the yeah. smartphone up against it, you know, because we're too cheap to do a decent camera. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, look, uh, we better get into some news before we start in chocolate and so forth because it is chocolate weekend, as I call it. But, um, yeah, I'm a science guy, so I'm not going to say anything else. Dr. Kramer, shall we start with you? Yes. Well, first of all, um, what I'm not going to talk about. <laughs> is, <laughs> is this I, a long list? I, I would, I would. It is, um, for those of you who don't know, it's Autism Awaren- Awareness Month. And it, uh, okay. Autism Awareness Day was on Tuesday. And I will, uh, we will pop up a blog uh, that I wrote on, on what is aut- entitled What is Autism on the Einstein Agogo website. Um, but I'm interested, after hearing uh, hearing a song on Triple R this week called Something in the Water by, by Pokey Lafarge, look it up, I, um, it got me to thinking about my, uh, my favourite area of research is what, can, what is in the water? What is in our environment that can be making us sick? Hmm. And I found, in fact, yesterday, two, two stories. The first story was in The Age. And it reads, cleaning with bleach linked to more childhood infections. Mm. It's the idea that it's the, basically the false belief that we need to get rid of all the bugs in our home. Some, are bu- some bugs are good, some are bad, just like the, ad- just like the advert says. And this, this study of 9,000 school-aged children found that, um, that they looked at levels of infections, etc., 
in the, in 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 houses in homes and found that more infect the more um, infections people were getting or the more bleach people were using the more infections they were getting so we mm-hmm. do have to roll around in the dirt a little and i think studies like this will keep coming up with these with these kind of Findings. It's people spraying, you know, that spray bleach, etc. That are, that I, uh, whose product that I won't name. Yes, we have to clean. We have to clean the really baddies off. But just think, when you're cleaning with with bleach, you're complete. You're you're cleaning the goodies off as well. Mm. Some people are obsessed with it too. I mean, I know we have a friend who, when you eat at their house for dinner, um, you'll sort of sit down. Everyone eats at the table, and then immediately after they clear the plates, this person will spray the table <laughs> and clean, yeah. thinking. Did I really do the up that much? You know, it's, a bit, it's, it's a bit. It's yeah. a bit much. Yeah. And the second, uh, the second uh, news story was study links common food additives to Crohn's disease and colitis. These are um, inflammatory bowel uh, disorders, and mm. not something in the water, something in the mayonnaise. Oh. In this case, it's basically emulsifiers. They looked at polysorbate 80 and carboxymethyl cellulose. Look those up at home. They are in margarine, mayonnaise, creamy sauces, candy, ice cream, etc., etc. They are there to make sure that when you mix something fatty and something that's water-soluble, it will stay together as an emulsion. Mm. And there are many people out, out there that will have suspected them. But what we need is not just one this one scientific study but more and more scientific studies to prove and this mm. is one step along that line that food some food additives in a single study here um have been linked with increased susceptible to inflammatory diseases so we just need to study these a lot more not make blanket statements that, that all additives are bad Hmm. Um, just need to study these a lot more because there's there's a number of things in the environment that we suspect are contributing to inflammatory disorders, um, neurodevelopmental disorders, etc., like autism. But we just have not been able to pin anything. It's a slow hmm. progress we need to make. Hmm. Uh, I remember uh, Dr. Cromo seeing seeing that news, and, and what struck me about it was one, they used emulsifier, which was polysorbate eighty. The cellulose isn't actually an emulsifier; it's used as a thickener, ah. and and so. You go, why? Why are all these additives in our food? And it's because we we all want particular flavor yep. profiles and textures. Uh, cellulose is interesting. I mean, that's derived from paper. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. that's actually. Well, the, the, I guess the frustrating thing is somebody could actually list that as a natural ingredient. Yeah. Where's the polysorbate eighty? Isn't it? Uh, I was reading a, a a rather long article about food exposure, and I think one of the more depressing things about found about food additives were the number of things that they can add or use that are called processing aids which don't make it on the ingredient list Mm -hmm. and it's actually a disturbing number of things of cellulose and gelling agents and things from that help make cut up fruit look preserved even when it's not Mm. um it's it's a bizarre world i mean i know with um my wife she ended up with celiac disease a couple of years ago and and so we've learned a lot about you know where you find gluten and I, i have a simple rule these days and that is if it looks like the company could bulk it up to to add mass and sell it to you for for more money for less actual food then it has gluten in it and that tends to be the rule of thumb most of the time you know you look at anything that they can bulk up with yeah. with just as you say bulking agents um then, then it has these sorts of things in that you probably don't want to be consuming a lot of yeah so good old home cooking the farmhouse mm. you can make mayonnaise yourself my yep. mum used to make it um and that's got no emulsifiers in because it stays together for a few hours including in a few days in the fridge mm. it's just processed foods yes you can make sauces you can make mayos and 
and all. Yeah. You can make pies. And they last, well, in my household, they don't last very long <laughs> at all. <laughs> but they will last a couple of days in the yeah. fridge. And it's just those pre-packaged goods that... Well, that's, that's the second rule, so isn't it? it? A muffin shouldn't last a month. <laughs> <laughs> if you buy something that you think, leaving this out on the bench, it should go off within a, you know, a day or two, then it probably should. And you've got to, I think you've just got to be careful. Look, a lot of this is moderation, though, too. I mean, we're not going to be completely removing these products from our from our tables, um, but you do have to be more aware that if you eat a lot of them, then um, that, that'll be problematic. Hmm. All right, moving on. Emily, what have you got for us? Yeah, so uh, there was a nice story in the news this week that NASA put out, which is that the SWIFT satellite, which is an X-ray, gamma ray, and uh, UV telescope that's uh, orbiting the Earth, is celebrating its 10-year anniversary this wow. week. So um, SWIFT is mainly in charge of observing things called gamma ray bursts, and these bursts are the most uh, basically the most powerful events in the entire universe. So a single gamma ray burst gives off more energy than a galaxy, what? right? So it's, there are these <laughs> very intense explosions. Yeah. And um, when the satellite was launched 10 years ago, um, we knew that they were very bright, but we had no idea where, where, where they were coming from. And so SWIFT was actually responsible for solving that mystery and uh, launching it in space. Um, and when it started its mission, it actually uh, finally solved where where these these short gamma ray bursts so these gamma ray bursts that last less than two seconds where they were coming from and it turns out that it's from these uh, neutron stars and other galaxies that are colliding together and producing these very short very bright bursts hmm. and over its history so in the last 10 years swift has found over 900 gamma ray bursts which wow. is the majority of the gamma ray burst population that we know of um, and it's expected to run for another five years or so doing this amazing science um, and it's a fantastic instrument. I've actually used Swift for some of my research, and it's just, it's an incredible thing. Um, so, yeah, it's very exciting that, you know, they, they get to celebrate these 10 years of incredible achievement. Was there an original sort of time frame set on Swift? I mean, usually these things are around three to five years. Was was it a shorter time frame that it was originally put up there for? They were actually expecting that it would last for a fairly long amount of time. So 10 years is, is pretty good. They, okay. You know, that's kind of what they were expecting just because they've um, put a lot of effort into making it uh, sustainable and be able to kind of drive itself and, mm. and conserve power. Um, but, yeah, I think having it operate for 15 years, they're hoping it'll operate for another five. That's that's really remarkable. They weren't expecting it to last quite that long. Yeah. It'd be great to see um, someone should put a chart out. There's always someone there willing to put a chart together of all these craft and who's holding the record at the moment. I'm assuming it's Voyager <laughs> holding holding the record, Voyager 1 and 2. But um, Hubble, of course, is in, what, year 23 or something? I think it must be... Yeah, I think it's something... I, if I'm not mistaken, it actually was launched in 1990. 1990. Okay, so was, 25. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's as old as I am. <laughs> old as you... <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember. <laughs> when it was launched. I think I was doing the program. Uh, <laughs> do you mean? Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting um, when you hear about some of the some of the ones this year, especially, well, the Mars rovers. I, I know that they have a far more extraordinarily severe environment to, to cater with. But, you know, usually if they get 10 months out of some of these things, it's it's looking pretty bright. But uh, it'd be interesting to see if Swift is still going. And, uh, and these gamma ray bursts are coming up um, randomly at various times. So it's not like we've just found them all. They just, they happen 
at different times. Yeah, that's right. They're happening over the whole sky all the time. So even as we're talking, there's probably gamma ray bursts happening throughout the universe that we could be picking up with Swift. And we're stuck in this room. <laughs> so get out your get out your foil hats, people. Yeah. <laughs> but that probably wouldn't yeah. protect us, would it? No, if, if a gamma ray burst happened, say in our own galaxy, and was directed at us, because they're very very highly beamed, so there's just this very tiny beam that comes wow. at them. But if one of them happened in our own galaxy and was pointed at Earth, we would all be fried. So they're not they're not kind of a general kind of glowing thing. They're a beam. No, yes, they're this intense, very very bright uh, beam of gamma rays, and then X rays follow afterwards. So yeah, wow. even that we're seeing so many of them over the whole sky, there's actually m- many more happening in the universe wow, than, so than we can observe. They kind of remind me of kind of Star Wars laser beams, so maybe one day in the distant future That's you might better right. ha- harness something like that. <laughs> for a few seconds. For good, of yeah. course. <laughs> not for evil. Yes, indeed. Dr. Ray, what do you go for us? Uh, so, Dr. Shane... I- Predators in the ocean and our assumptions about how they interact with it are always changing, um, which is what makes one of the things about marine life so fascinating. I mean, there's examples where everybody thought that if killer whales and sharks didn't really interact, and then they realized in, in, in a couple pods in L.A., off L.A., and in New Zealand, killer whales actually hunt sharks. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, a couple of years ago, there were some great YouTube videos. Well, this is another one of, that has to do with sharks as a predator perhaps not interacting the way you thought they might and and these were um uh well this has been speculated it's never been observed and uh this is off the coast of south africa there was a dive boat operator taking pictures of blue sharks and he was taking pictures underwater photography of these 10 blue sharks and getting some really good footage and all of a sudden this young cape fur seal um swims over and kills five of the blue sharks. Wow. Uh, and literally, um, the, the pictures are phenomenal because it, 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 it dives in and eats its intestines. And, you know, uh, and they're about cool. the same size. <laughs> a blue shark and a fur seal are about the same size. Enjoy your breakfast, folks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or your chocolate eggs. Um, uh, and and uh, they both typically prey on smaller fish and squid and things like that. So the idea that seals would be a predator for a shark is mm. very unheard of. Uh, you can read about it in the African Journal of Marine Science. Uh, and, and, and they actually think, you know, this might explain, could have impact on how they think about models for things like, well, if you, you seals are killing blue sharks, that keeps predators down, that could affect small fish populations, and, and it really changes the perception of that little part of the ecosystem. I think, too, the, the, the whole idea, though, around the shark, I mean, you know, okay, a seal eating a penguin, I can see that. You know, penguins, you know, not that hard to bite size. through, right? Yeah, and size. But but the shark has an incredibly, and you're showing me this picture, it is intense, but, you know, they, they've got this incredible, um, almost armor-like skin um, that, you know, is is tough, um, yeah. and you wouldn't have thought, and, and just the speed of them too. I mean, I mean, seals are fast. There's no doubt about that. But um, the speed of them, the, the agility, it's it's incredible to see two yeah. two large animals. Maybe doing it's that. kind of parallel. I mean, mammals eating fish. It's kind of a bit like us. Maybe, mm. maybe. Well, I guess there's some some, some parallels there. Why shouldn't a mammal eat a fish? Are you thinking shark sushi? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. I guess it also comes back to what's available in its environment, and if it, yeah. it is restricted in terms of its diet, then it will it will go it after whatever it has to. Yeah. Um, this article, you know, maybe it was the whole full moon thing that got me going. Uh, full moon, uh, blood oh. moon, blood moon. Um, it was all happening. But uh, there is a, a particular type of um, non-flowering plant um, called called Euphredia fromenia, and it's a, it's a relative to um, conifers and um, uh, 
And it secretes these small translucent sort of globules of slug, uh, specific, I mean, you can sort of dine to grab nocturnal pollinating insects. So they, they have to smell sweet and, and they, they need to glow in order for these nocturnal insects to be able to pick them up and then pollinate these plants. So, you know, it's very sort of smart, um, nature being smart again. Now, two researchers from Stockholm University uh, in Sweden have been studying this, Katarina Ryden and Christina Bollander, and they were really fascinated because... Um, like a lot of um, similar species of plants, they expected that this thing would only secrete this every 12 months. And so basically what they did was they saw this secretion, you know, it looks like a whole lot of little, you imagine little fireflies all over these plants, but it's actually the plant itself, so it's the little diamonds. Um, and that's and that's what we can see. So you can imagine what um, certain insects that have different visual acuity could see. Um, it would probably, you know, the whole area would probably glow and smell sweet and sickly, juicy, you know. Yeah. Um, and so what they did was um, they were at this field site and they were looking at them um, in Greece and Croatia back in 2013 and they thought, well, we'll come back a year later and look again, exactly one year later because um, some of these plants do this once a year. Of course, when they came back, they didn't find any globules at all. And it was, well, hang on, this is this is not right. We're here at exactly the right time of year. This should be happening. Um, they didn't see them. And then they were basically, you know, from what I read, they were essentially in a pub chatting away as to, you know, drinking their sorrows as to they'd made this field trip. You know, field trips, folks, if, you, if you're wondering, are not, are not a cheap adventure for scientists. And often, you know, the funding is fairly limited to do them. And they realised that maybe it wasn't an annual cycle that they were looking for at all, but a lunar cycle. Ah. And so they started looking at patterns of when um, when they'd seen or when there'd been recordings of these globules glowing in the past and then linked them with what phase of the moon that happened. And it happened to be whenever there was a full moon. And so then they just waited. They went back when there was a full moon and whammo, they found this plant doing its thing, which is quite extraordinary. Um, and, in fact, you know, there's there's a few things that um, behave this way in nature, but these particular plant or plants don't. Um, so there are, there are, I think this is the only example of a plant actually being able to do this effectively in nature. Dr. Ray? Is this something to the moon? Is just that extra bit of light that enhances the visibility for the insects? So, yeah. yeah, so there's two things here. I mean, I mean, the two main things that change is the gravitational arrangement of where things are. Now, you know, you could argue maybe the plants are sensing that, or it's the optical arrangement, mm. which is quite different. I mean, you know, full moon is a bright bright night so it could well be that that extra added bit of um, night um, brightness maybe the insects are more outgoing at that time and that maximizes the chance of this occurring and you know even though they're glowing as well you need the insects to come out in the first instance and and travel around so anyway it's the first plane of its type to actually been um to be observed doing this um which is which is pretty funky stuff but um yeah you can imagine them being quite disturbed when they first went back a year later and realized that this just wasn't happening on the cycle that all the other plants it was related to um, were doing it on. It was on a completely different cycle, on a lunar cycle. 102.7. So, Dr. Shane, I am talking about an anniversary. Not quite as exciting as the Swift anniversary we just heard about, but an anniversary nonetheless. And that's because we are coming up on April 20th of the five-year anniversary of BP's Deepwater Horizons explosion. Which, oh, yes. um, unfortunately killed 11 people in the explosion, uh, as well as created an 87 day undersea geyser of oil, mm. Mm. uh, that 
released at least, and I think this is the lowest estimate, five million five hundred and eighteen million liters of oil wow. into the, the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and uh, what's interesting uh, uh, about this was is people are coming back to look at kind of at five years where are things in tracking the impact of having so much oil, particularly heating the Louisiana coastline and Alabama and, and, and parts of Georgia. But they reckon 65, 675 kilometers of Louisiana's coastline got oiled. That's a lot. Uh, and, and to try to look at what's happened after five years, what has recovered, what hasn't, um, there's some very big motivations about this. Some of it is the ecological disaster and understanding what's happened. Um, we're still tallying the damage bill that BP is going to pay. Hmm. They've already paid $5.4 billion in both research and stray payouts and things like that. But actually tracking how different things have been hurt is actually part of this. In fact, in these discussions I was reading about the impact, there's some things that are still they're not even talking about because shrimp, blue crab, and oyster are huge cash crops. And and so whether or not these things are recovering is is quite an issue. So are you telling me that an oil company is going to be paying for the environmental damage that it's doing? What an amazing concept! <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, when I get to the end, though, you, you, you're not going to feel as happy about okay. that. But um, <laughs> proceed. And, and so what I wanted to to, to look at was um, is to actually talk about just kind of in in one of the as an example. Uh, in one of the harder-hit areas, what's been impacted, what have they clearly seen evidence for, and then what have they not, what has mm. recovered, and why. And, and and this is not unlike some of the other uh, – we used to teach sustainability in Intro to ChemEng, where we actually looked at some videos on, on other oil spills. It's very complicated, understanding mm. what happens in the to the ecology in these systems when you put oil in. And, and a lot of scientists will commonly say – we're not quite sure what's going to recover. Sometimes we're struggling as to why, but we know we have to monitor and watch it. And, and some of these things are quite difficult to nut out. And I love to have this. Um, this is a, a feature by um, Warren Cornwall, uh, particularly uh, that came out in Science, that where I got a lot of the material from for this. Um, they described it as one of the world's largest uncontrolled experiments, right? Uh, because we don't know quite how this is going to recover. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and the other challenge is we didn't always have fantastic baselines beforehand. So a lot of times we're studying something over five years where we're comparing an oiled area to a non-oiled area. Um, but some clear impacts. Things that we've known happened. And, and um, a lot of these examples uh, I'm going to pull on are from Bateria Bay, which was one of the hardest hit little islands and bayous and things in, in Louisiana. Uh, soil erosion. Uh, quite stark because when the petroleum goes into the soil, you get a bloom of petroleum bacteria okay. that break down the petroleum. They also break down a lot of the root structure. And so I think the estimates in Louisiana are something they lost something like five kilometers squared of coast and wetlands. Extraordinary. And and to give you an idea of that, because we always, people sometimes struggle with square kilometers in terms of area. And a lot of Louisiana coast in hard hit areas, they put these large plastic posts in uh, where the shoreline was. And five years later, in a lot of areas, those posts are 20 meters from the shoreline. Mm. So we're talking. Uh, there's certainly been serious erosion. I think. I think one, often I, I, I like to you know use the one times table to elucidate what mm. squareage means. But so if you think of that, it is five kilometers down the Melbourne coastline, which is not appreciable, and one kilometer in. Yeah, that's five square kilometers. So that is a monstrous area, and you, you, you start you know dropping it down to a couple of hundred meters in, and you think of how long you have to go. It's, it's a big area. And, and then if you think about impact on wildlife, you have all different scales. You have insects, birds, 
uh, dolphins, shrimp, fish, and so just some of the ones that shock eating seals. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you for that. So <laughs> in insects, because one of the people they interviewed was studying ants, um, the things that, the impact of what they're looking at, they, they were actually looking at one type of ant where they noticed it had smaller heads in oiled areas because it was malnourished. Right. Uh, a small-headed ant, I didn't know that could be a problem. Uh, you know, and, and they're seeing, but in some of the oiled areas where they didn't see insects five years ago or even two years, last year, they're starting to see some recovery. Um, but there have been things that in oiled areas, there's just a lot less snails. That hasn't really started. That's recovered a little bit. Um, some birds, for example, sparrows, don't have as many nests and chicks in oiled areas, but their general population doesn't seem to have declined. Mm. Um, on the sparrows new, are tough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> on the news, there were thousands of brown pelicans that died. Yeah. Mm. But it seems that it hasn't impacted the population that much five years later. So, you know, you see about these traumatic things, and you go, well, for some reasons, and sometimes I don't know, some populations have fared okay, and others haven't. It depends, I guess. That, that does depend, though, very much on the demographics of what you're losing. So if it's the older non-breeding pelicans that are the ones that are, that are dying first, then, then to be fair, yeah. it's not going to successively damage the population over a period. Well, yeah. and it also depends on the, the breeding cycle and the lifespan mm. of the actual animal, yeah. too. Um, and, and, and I'll get you at it. Killifish is another one where they're actually tr- struggling to understand why. These are basically the minnows and small fish that end up in all the estuaries. Um, they have great examples of abnormalities in growth, exposure to toxicity from oil, uh, all these things about toxicity uh, and, and things that shouldn't aren't very good to fish, genetic markers, all these flags that these fish have been exposed to oil. But their population hasn't dropped. And so you go, well, well, I guess that's good, but this is the complexity. So they had a similar problem with herring in when the Exxon Valdez spill dumped 43 million liters of oil. Um, four years afterwards, the killifish, the, 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 sorry, the herring population dropped like a rock in that area. And it took them another 10 years to realize it actually started declining when the Exxon Valdez spilled, but it took that long to recognize what was happening in the population. So something, mm-hmm. a fish that looks like it's been exposed to a lot of toxic chemicals might actually that might have an impact later. And that's bizarre because it's genetic impact mm-hmm. because, you know, the fish don't live that long. It's been five years. And so, um, some, so that's one where maybe something's going to happen. Uh, dolphins, man, did they get hit. Mm-hmm. So there was an increased number of strandings. I think in the, we're estimating 1,200 extra dolphins died from the oil spill. Uh, and in areas where it was hard hit, they've surveyed, and a third of the dolphins have lung disease. Wow. A quarter of them are malnourished. And, and, and so mammals didn't do so well in that yeah. one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the idea that – then there's confusing things. Shrimp populations went up the year after the oil spill. Really? Now, it's complicated, though. They don't know, did shrimp go up, or was it that they gave a break on fishing shrimp for a year? Yeah. Or some of the predators that normally consume shrimp were out of the system. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very complicated interplay. Um, And so what we're seeing is uh, there's a great list of what's improving, what's improving a little bit. But the thing is, whenever you hear this, you go, oh, it's recovering. Oh, yeah, it's recovering to, like, you know. 10 20 percent of what it used to be mm. um oysters are an interesting one because now we're talking about a cash crop it's a little hard to see but some they had to come up with some very clever control experiments to show that oyster seeding and they had to use some they had to bring in very controlled and reproducible ceramic uh little environments for the oysters to live in oysters actually when they actually looked at it very closely are seeding less into 
oiled areas. And then when you start talking to fishermen, they're talking about 20% below what has been ever been the worst. Mm-hmm. But it, 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 in a legal sense, it's going to get complicated because oysters also, they're very sensitive to salinity, other environmental factors that were always changing and, and runoff and, 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 and things that, other things that f- from humankind that still affect it. So there'll be this argument, well, did we really do it? Did the BP really do it? Did, was it already going to be a problem? And, 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 and particularly in, in blue crabs and oysters and shrimp, they haven't even published all the findings because there's actually a, a, a research discovery phase where this is still going to lead to a very big payout on damage. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was kind of, this is, I mean, five years out is a good time to start thinking about these things because like you were saying with the shrimp, you know, can you really say that the, it was the spill that affected the population or was it? The, the aftermath of the spill. So it's really these long-term trends that matter. Because, um, I mean, I think we as humans have a tendency to just kind of look at exactly what happens directly after an event, but really it's the long-term impacts on that area that are the most important. Exactly. And, and, and when we say start to recover, there's a couple more things that we ha- I didn't mention, but they really get into the recover phase. So along the Louisiana coastline, it's got this mud cake Mm. On, on where the, yep. the, the the oil has basically turned into kind of a mud rock. If you pick it up and break it open, you'll smell motor oil. Wow. Now, the grasses are actually growing through this stuff. So do you say, oh, it's recovery because the plants are still growing through? But what's the impact of having that much petroleum-based chemicals that the plants are growing mm. through? And then how long does it take for things that eat the plants, the insects, the bugs, things that eat the bugs. So how does it permeate through the whole ecosystem? It takes a long time to understand yeah. that impact. I think even the term recovery here is the wrong term. I mean, in a sense, you've destroyed the old ecosystem. It is gone. There is a new one now that we have, and we're just learning what it looks like. But the, I mean, full, full recovery of that ecosystem, you'd have to say, will not happen. Maybe in 500 years, but I mean, to remove that much contaminant and rejuvenate those areas completely is not going to happen in the short term. I think BP should have a a check with all the details filled out, including signature, except for the number, and and you can change that at any time. (laughs) And one important thing to consider here this is, yeah, this is a short term outcome. Hmm. With environmental insults, it may affect. The next generation, the next generation after that. And many studies looking at environmental chemicals in the past haven't looked at the next generation. Mm, mm. Uh, uh, thalidomide being, be, yep. uh, being a prime example, but these kind of things still around in the environment. So these, these ecologists need to be there generation after generation of all this wildlife to see if this. The epigenetics term. of the situation, as you well, talk, I, 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 Dr. Kramer? I might suggest, good suggestion, the e, putting, adding in the E word. There. <laughs> no, no, it's an excellent point. Um, so far in the 5.4 billion that's been spent 4.4 has been in environmental restoration and um uh mostly environmental restoration and paying people then there's about a billion dollars in research some of it is a bp started with a 500 million dollar donation for the hopes of pr they then put in another 500 million in criminal fines uh for national academies to create a 30-year research program Hmm. to study this uh, and then there was some money in the, the Clean Water Act as well. Uh, I'm guessing that they didn't list all of the extensive amount of money that went into the commercials that I remember on the U.S. television around that time, yeah. trying to uh, restore their good name and talk well, about how they're helping local fishermen and stuff like that. You bring up an excellent point about BP's PR, and, and this is actually what I, Dr. Shane had alluded to. 
that it's happening again. That what they're doing is is they're trying to. Uh, I actually, it, it, the, the writer didn't say this, but I have it written in my notes. Preying on the fact that there's some positive comments about, oh, this is recovering. They've actually started a PR campaign to suggest things are getting better, things are recovering, we're mm. quite on track. So we're already seeing another PR lobby from BP where most scientists would call it premature. Yeah. Uh, and uh, because there's this big financial interest, particularly if they end up showing that they've significantly hit the oyster market, the shrimp market, or the blue crab market, the, that, that's that's a... That's not just a large financial impact. That's an ongoing one, too. The most disturbing part about this story is we're all complicit because we all use it. And Well, not everyone. I'm sure there's some listeners out there who try to avoid it at all costs, but uh, for most of us who are reliant on our cars, these things have a well, high cost. We always love to go cars, but did yeah, we, like, other things too. Did we yeah. like eating food? Yeah, most commercial yeah. fertilizers come from petroleum Absolutely. products. Absolutely, yeah. And, and other things, too. It's in, it's in a lot of our stuff. Anyway, we're, on that, the triple note, we're going to take a break. Triple. Now, Dr. Cromo, you've been working on something for us for this good uh, public holiday Sunday. Yes. As, um, Shane, as, as you may have known, um, a few weeks ago, I was overseas at a conference, and I was tweeting wildly as I as I as is my wont. You normally do that. And it is a, it, you don't it, have to be at a conference, Doctor. Yeah, you do that all the time, pal. Oh, you should see my 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 peak. I peak at conferences. I do. Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> good to know. Uh, but uh, but uh, this conference uh, and uh, this conference was all about alcohol. So what does alcohol do? Well, it loosens our tongues, um, makes us merry, and is actually marketed to us incessantly by by the media as mm. something that you know intelligent, clever, joy-loving people do. Um, but it is arguably the most abused drug in the world. Yeah. We talk about drug abuse. Well, alcohol is there up top, uh, vying with vying with uh, with nicotine. Well, it's interesting how people um, talk about marijuana. And the you know supposed damage it does compared to alcohol, and I think if you look into that, you'll find it's a very one one sided problem, yeah. and it's all on the side of alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. So alcohol damages our brain, our heart, liver, pancreas, and immune system, and of course, <laughs> just just for good luck, it throws in a few cancers there as well. Mm. Uh, for example, in women, it raises the risk of breast cancer. And according to the World Health Organization, three and a third million deaths every year are attributable to alcohol abuse. And 139 million years of healthy life is lost worldwide. I love those stats. They call, right? them, yeah, yeah. they call them dailies, da- uh, daily adjusted life years. It's right. a great stat. And drinking is rising. But it's, it's, in fact, on average it's rising. In men it's flatlining, but in women it's increasing. Um, Women, uh, w- what do you got to say about that, Emily? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, could it get any higher in men? Is the first question. Yeah, so maybe, but we're alcohol, saturated. Yeah. Alcohol has been has been marketed specifically to women sometimes, mm. um, and but culture's changing. Uh, according to one of the speakers at this conference, some female students are now playing drinking games of competitive blacking out. Are you think serious? about it? Competitive blacking out. Um, I've had a few. Be- I have to say, when I was younger and stupid, uh, you know, quite honestly, I've had a few big nights where things have come back up, but I have never drunk enough to black out. I'm not even sure I, I could. I once fell asleep on the ba- <laughs> in the should, should I say in the bathroom of a uh, of a of a nightclub when I was 
18. After a light beer. Um, after a light beer, all three. <laughs> so, um, anyway. But um, women are getting chronic liver disease in their 20s, yeah. something that old yes. people get. Um, but So which kind of people do you think are, are, are most likely to abuse alcohol? Well, I would have thought the sort of uh, 15 to 25-year-old yeah. range would be my guess. And socioeconomically disadvantaged? The socioeconomic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, no. Every, every it's across socioeconomic statuses. There was a great talk from Anne Dowsett Johnson, who was a recovered alcoholic. She was a school principal and keeping mm-hmm. it secret, uh, and written a, a great book. Um, and she says basically, alcohol is the modern woman's steroid. So Discuss. Mm. Um, but and it's sounding alarm bells because well, half of all pregnancies are unplanned. And when alcohol is consumed in the first few weeks of pregnancy, it causes birth defects. Just three to four weeks old, a one millimeter embryo is susceptible to alcohol. Wow. One millimeter, three before a woman even knows she's pregnant. Do we most know of the time. what level of alcohol? That's the big question. We know that alcohol. We know that chronic alcohol consumption. It's one of my um, uh, projects that I'm working on. Is how much is, is too much. Mm. Um, there's a big group of us at the at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute asking that question. What does it mean for the offspring? And what does it mean for the behavior, uh, for the growth, for the, for the epigenetics? It's an unknown question. It's known that uh, too much alcohol, which is binge, binge drinking, heavy drinking and binge drinking. Um, so as a result, um, a child is born every 30 seconds with a major brain disorder due to prenatal alcohol exposure. Every 30 mm. seconds somewhere, somewhere in the world. So this conference was on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, or FASD for short. It's kind of an umbrella term to discuss, uh, to co- to, to, that covers the physical, behavioral, developmental outcomes. Um, so children with FASD have recognizable facial structures. And if you look at the pictures, they have uh, a thin upper lip, a small lower jaw, a flat mid-face, and who knows what the philtrum is. Can anybody point to their philtrums? Is that the part between your nose and your mouth? The groove between the nose and the mouth. In fairness to the audience, Dr. Cromo did accidentally point to it when he asked us that. (laughs) Dr. Shane may have known ahead of time. (laughs) So... It's, uh, and, and you it, have a small growth of hair on yours, so we can't even. T- we yeah, can't. Exactly. We cannot assess you. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. So a flat filtrum. <laughs> That's and interesting. This developmental biologist was telling us of how the plates come uh, in the developing head come together in the middle. Two plates, one from the left, one from the mm-hmm. right, and one from above. And it's the one from above that doesn't fill in that gap. Right. Your right. upper jaw is is, a, is composed of three plates. Wow. If you have a cleft palate, the two from either side don't join. Mm-hmm. But a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. What it does if you go back. A little bit in time in early pregnancy there's a there's a group of cells called the neural crest that start on the backbone they work their way towards your brain your face and some of them towards your gut and these this migration slow is slowed down by alcohol so these plates don't always don't always fit but also your brain doesn't doesn't fully develop all mm. the all the connections don't develop so you have this disorder that's united by alcohols um, messing messing with development um, and there's some amazing stats that came up with uh, at this conference. More than 60% of children with FASD have been physically, sexually, or, m- or emotionally abused. Nine out of every ten children with FASD are diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder. Nine mm-hmm. out of ten. Youths with FASD are 19 times, 19, one, nine, more likely to be incarcerated and more likely to be victims of crime, uh, crimes themselves. 
It's also it's often referred to as the, as the invisible disability, especially because quite often there's no specific clinic in various in each cities that diagnoses fetal alcohol spectrum uh, spectrum disorder. But what stood out for me at the conference really was the the delegates. The delegates were all the stakeholders, not just researchers and and and, and companies, but um, counselors and people that have gone through this uh, this. Um, this disorder that uh, had parented children and it was so emotionally charged the first conference I've ever been to where where these, a couple of the speakers were in tears some of the mm. audience were in tears afterwards and what was we heard that this amazing story of a um, guy called Paul Burke who's the father of a boy with, with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders it's kind of funny because he introduced his qualifications as OCD, ADHD and a DAD <laughs> um, so he stood in front of all these hundreds of us and admitted I carry shame. I fed her and um, drugs and alcohol when my wife was pregnant. And then he says, what do you do when your child says, Daddy, why am I, I the way that I am? And Daddy, I don't want to live anymore. So his mm. child was affected and knew they were affected by this, by this condition. And I mentioned we heard from Anne, uh, uh, Anne Dowsett Johnson, who'd, who'd recovered uh, from, from these... Um, uh, have recovered from being, a, being an alcoholic, but she had a child with, with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And I was asking, asking one of the counsellors on my table why, what makes uh, women in pregnancy drink alcohol. And she said there's a whole number of factors. Uh, there's ignorance, there's, uh, there's ignorance, there's peer pressure. She said one of her clients said that her, her uh, one of her clients said that I can't stop drinking alcohol because my partner said that if I did, he'd go with another woman. So that's the kind of pressure that some that some women have. You call that uh, moron pressure. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but there was some interesting um, science presented there. Um, People, uh, uh, one researcher was looking at at rats to see to see how um, how that changed the immune system. Mm. And one thing that drinking alcohol does to the offspring is tip the balance. We all we all we all have this balance of um, pro-inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory. And a lot of developmental disorders now, including autism, schizophrenia, Parkinson's, that balance is tipped towards pro-inflammatory. And not just in blood, people with autism, etc., are, are more likely to have infections and uh, immune conditions, but also in the brain. The brain has these immune cells called glial cells or microglial cells that basically tidy up used, uh, used neurons, and they kind of they, they clean up the trash. And um, they get activated and they, fat, they actually get fat by eating these, these mm. neurons. And when they look in brains of, of, of children with FASD, they find a lot more kind of fat um, brain immune cells, so they, they're really stymieing what could, what should be really, really happening. Well, it sounds like you had a good time. Uh, it was, mm. it was, it, <laughs> it was, it was awesome. I think because of those stakeholders and the best to finish with the best success story was a story uh, about um, the um, remote Australian township of Fitzroy Crossing, where this lady called. This Aboriginal, lady of Aboriginal heritage called June Oscar mobilised the whole community to clean up the town, to change licensing laws mm -hmm. against verbal abuse, etc., um, and threats and everything. She, they clean up the whole town. They call it the Lilil One Project, which means uh, um, uh, looking after the little ones. And they 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 got a, a they, uh, they influence police policy as well as licensing laws there. They're introducing 
a culture back there, and they're recovering. They're slowly recovering, despite the government recently withdrawing funding from the project. Mm. An Australian success, success story in the Aboriginal community, you do not hear about that often. No. And it's just... I, I will um, share the blog I wrote this on, um, on Einstein and Gogo. It's just an amazing story. So, mm. yes, successes and failures, but the successes were were put to the fore at this conference. Mm. Good to hear. Thank you, Dr. Kramer. Three, triple, Now, I don't know whether you guys all heard during the week, but there was this amazing sort of Anglo-Saxon remedy that's thought to potentially cure um, oh, yes. some of the hospital superbugs. Did you hear about yeah. this? So this is interesting. Um, and you, you've got to be careful here. You know, many, uh, well, not many, but there are medicines that we use now in, in Western medicine that have been derived um, from... Um, uh, old text and so forth, and you know, especially in areas of uh, malaria. Um, can never remember how to say it, but um, the main malaria drug uh, came from old Chinese texts and so forth. So, you know, some of these, and I think of you know, if you if you rug, rub enough tiger balls and and shark fins and stuff on you, eventually you'll come out with something that actually works. So, you well, know, we have, you can <clears> sort <throat> the crap from the good. Though. Exactly, like, that, that's like my point. No evidence know. for tiger. Oh yeah, yeah, you might fins, you might um, you might fins. try three thousand before you randomly just come across something that has therapeutic benefit so so there are going to be some things that work in um in those areas but this one's interesting it's um three thousand year old three thousand year old anglo-saxon recipe um and it was designed you know when you get a sort of ingrown infected eyelash you you can get a sty in your eye and it was designed to deal with that anyway a microbiologist from university of nottingham in uk freya harrison um, was working with a anglo-saxon scholar as, as you do, as you do, Christina Lee. I want one. Any out there? They were chatting probably at the pub. And um, anyway, they looked at this old um, English medical compendium um, called Bold's Leech Book um, that's in the British Library, and they found this um, particular recipe. Now, someone back in 2005 gave it a try, but by the sounds of things, they didn't quite use the right ingredients, and the authenticity wasn't there, and it didn't work. And um, Freya and Christina went a bit further, and they actually tried to source as much stuff as possible as authentic as possible. Now, if you think of some of the components, things like leaks and that, well, our leaks aren't what leaks were 3,000 years ago. So they got as close as they could, and they found that this thing killed something like 90% of the bacteria that causes um, these infections, which is actually listed as one of the um, hospital superbugs, uh, which is similar to what the antibiotics we use to kill this bug um, achieved. So there's something in it. Um, wow. Now what they've got to work out is what that is, what the combination is that, that works. So what was the weird, the weird thing in it? Oh, there was some really weird stuff. Um, weird stuff. Anyway, we're out of time. Emily, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. It's great been to, good to be here. Great to have you back. Dr. Cromo, thank, thank you. you. And Dr. Ray. Cheers. Good to see you. And Liv, thanks so much for doing our Twitter feed. We love you. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane, and we'll talk again next week. Have a great Sunday, folks. And if you're having tomorrow off, which most of you probably are, enjoy the long weekend and um, stay safe. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.